Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Jesus. Some of us heard it from our mom. Some of us heard it from our dad. Some of us heard it from a neighbor, a friend, a malin, or this invitation to go to some meetings. And Father, we thank you that you reached us through this beautiful message of love and hope. We thank you for Jesus. And as we study his word again this afternoon, we ask for the gift of your Holy Spirit, that our eyes might be open, our ears as well, and we may understand the message that you have for us this afternoon. We ask a special blessing of your Holy Spirit upon Pastor John Anderson as he speaks your words to us. We thank you for hearing our prayers because we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Sam. Good afternoon. Thank you for taking the time to join us in this journey of studying. And we are going to be going through our Bible, so I hope you have a Bible with you. Uh, the offer remains open that uh, rather than trying to write down the text, if you want me to email to you the PowerPoint files, uh, that's perfectly fine. Just give me your email address. And uh, I've asked Lorraine also to post them on the church website, so hopefully there's information that is accessible and, uh, and the information is also in the, in the book that we'll be talking about later, too. So we're talking now, we have, have talked about uh, verse 12 of Revelation 16. I'm just going to read it with emphasis on a word or two. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, the rushing torrent river Euphrates. Its water was dried up, waters representing in the Bible particularly armies on the march to destroy, uh, most particularly representing Satan's attack against God's people at the end of time. But his waters were dried up, representing Christ arresting that attack and protecting his people, so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And the story, above all the stories in the Bible, that teaches and illustrates what this is about is the story of Cyrus. Cyrus was a Persian king from the east of Babylon, was Persia, and uh, he attacked and conquered Babylon and set the captives free and allowed them to go back to their homeland. So we see in this text uh, the, the message that the battle has to do with the armies of heaven as against the armies of Babylon. And it's a global, uh, a global warfare that's taking place. It's not limited to one small place in the Middle East. We recognize that the, the Middle East is going to be a hot spot because there are valuable resources that many people want there. And there are conflicts that have been going on there literally for millennia. People that have not gotten along since the days of Abraham are still trying to sort it out there. And so that's going to be a part of the picture of, of this world as, as it comes to its close. But that's not what Armageddon is about. Armageddon is about the final segment of this battle between Christ and, and Satan, the followers of Christ, the followers of Lucifer, and how that comes to a climatic, climactic and victorious Conclusion, as Jesus returns. Just as Cyrus and his generals were the kings of the east, rescuing God's people from ancient Babylon, so Jesus and his angels are the kings of the east who will rescue God's people from spiritual or apocalyptic Babylon. That's what this is talking about. It's not talking about 
tanks and uh, missiles in the, the plain of Megiddo. However, as we progress in our study, we'll see that, that the history of what took place in those lake locations do illustrate God's ability to save. So the, the historical um, heritage is important to study, but not that it's saying that there's going to be some big battle there in the future. Just to review real quickly, we talked about Cyrus, his name, his titles, and his activities, and how he dried up the Euphrates, literally, and allowed uh, his army to go in and conquer the city. He rescued God's people, and he built a new Jerusalem. These are all things that, that foreshadowed or prefigured or prophesied the mission of Jesus Christ. And the Bible is a book about Jesus. And Revelation specifically is a book that reveals Christ. So we shouldn't be surprised that encoded in its messages are, are things that lift up Christ as the Savior. And that's the beauty of the message of Armageddon seen from this perspective. So uh, the waters were dried up. We didn't talk about this. We didn't have time. But the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. That's the language that closes verse 12 there. And there's a rich study that has to do with looking back where that comes from. Isaiah chapter 40 is where that message is heard. Prepare the way. And what is that talking about? Well, in ancient times, when the king went out in his chariot, they didn't have modern vehicles with nice shock absorbers like we have. And so there would be a special road crew that would go ahead of the king's chariot, and they would fill in the potholes, they would knock down the mounds, they would straighten out the crooked places so that the king could have a nice ride in his chariot. So that call to prepare the way is a part of that, and the historical setting has to do with what they did. But that language was used to show how God was going to prepare the way or make the job easy for Cyrus to conquer Babylon and release his people. That's what prepare the way meant. That's what it says. And uh, the three layers, a lot of times things in the Bible are given in layers. They have more than one application. In this case, it's the very same thing. There was an original setting having to do with how God prepared the way for Cyrus. And if you study that phrase out in Isaiah, you'll find that it's used about a half a dozen times. And that's exactly what God did. Because when the water was diverted and they went up to the gates, what they find? The gates were locked or, or open. They were open. That was the easiest victory Cyrus ever won in his military career. He recognized later that it was God's hand that brought it about. God had prepared the way for him to do his job. And John the Baptist was given that same commission to say he was there to prepare the way so people could accept Jesus as the, as the true Messiah. All the prophecies that had been given for 4,000 years were now, re now ready to be fulfilled. And John the Baptist was given that same message to prepare the way for, for Christ's first coming. But we recognize that there's another third application of that because you and I, not us but me, are called to do that very same thing. We are called to prepare the way to make it easy for people to accept Jesus as the Savior and be citizens of his kingdom, loyal, obedient, willing citizens of God's kingdom. That's what he's looking for. So we see that there's an original setting and a first advent application as well as a second uh, advent application to this phrase, prepare the way. We, we figure into that. Now we're going to go to... Uh, Later in chapter 16, if you have your Bible open, we're going to read some verses here that follow verse 12. I hope, though, that from now on, whenever you read verse 12, and you read about the Euphrates being dried up to prepare the way of the kings of these, you say, I know what that's talking about. That's referring to what Cyrus did 
so that he could conquer ancient Babylon and release God's people. And I understand that that's what's going to happen at the second advent. God is going to intervene and protect his people who will be under the jeopardy of their lives with the assaults of Satan's armies, but he's going to protect them. And the kings of the east, that's Jesus and his angels coming to rescue his people. So let's take a look now at verse 13 of Revelation chapter 16. I saw three, three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Sorry, I should have advanced the slide earlier. But that's what the Bible says. So that's what we're going to take a look at. Our, our outline uh, in this first session, and by the way, uh, I, I see us as uh, having a study for maybe about an hour or so, and then taking a little break and stand up and stretch a little bit, and then uh, coming together to do the uh, last study after that. But this is what, what we're going to look at in this presentation. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, three frog-like spirits. That's, that, that's an unusual phrase. Why is that there? There must be a reason that God put that into the, into the text. And then signs that deceive. I, I emphasized the word three when I came upon that in the, in the text. I saw three unclean spirits. Satan is the master counterfeiter, the master forger. And he has taken it upon himself that whatever God does, he copies. He has a counterfeit for everything. And the dragon, beast, and false prophet comprise Satan's false trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that's, that's the Godhead, the Trinity that we recognize. But Satan has something to match up with it, he thinks anyway, the counterfeit Trinity of the dragon, beast, and false prophet. So Satan is the one who forges or copies or imitates, and the, the word image that we find in the book of Revelation and other places of the Bible is a word that's come into our language. Uh, it's the word icon. And you've seen that word. It used to be the word icon, you only thought of, uh, of pictures that would be on the walls of Greek Orthodox churches. Those were icons. But then with the technological revolution 20 years ago or so, now we hear the word icon, and uh, it's that little, little doodad on your screen that uh, has applications you know, waiting to be accessed. But uh, we're familiar with the word icon, and it comes from the Greek word ikon, and it just means copy or replica duplicate, something like that. Now, when we talk about the image, image meaning copy, coming from that word icon, when we talk about the image of the beast, as Seventh-day Adventists, we've almost always thought about it in only one way, and that is that it will be a duplication of the policies, the harsh policy of the Middle Ages. Persecution that the church brought on those who wanted to follow their conscience rather than the traditions of the church and were uh, subjected to extreme stresses and difficulties. Um, but we recognize that this idea, this concept of the image of the beast goes much beyond just that. Satan's made many, many different copies, and one of the prime ones, of course, is in the day of worship. God instituted his day of worship, the memorial of, of creation in the seventh-day Sabbath, but Satan has instituted his copy of that, his duplicate, his icon, his icon, and that has to do with the institution of the first day of the worship, first day of the week being elevated to that position. Uh, Satan has copied God's capital city. 
If I were to tell you about a city that was four square, a city of gold, an eternal city with a river running through it, a paradise, what would you think of? Well, you think of the New Jerusalem, but what else would you think of? Ancient Babylon. All of those things Satan incorporated into the construction of ancient Babylon because it was his copy of God's capital. That's what his agenda has been, to copy, duplicate, mimic what God has done. So this threefold union is part of that image aspect or copying, the threefold unit. And there's some others too. Uh, in the book of Acts, which we're studying in our, our church up in Benton right now, we find that there was a, a miracle of the giving of the ability to speak in different languages. And I'm telling people that, that rather than use the word tongues, when you read in the book of Acts or other places like Romans, use the word language. And you have full, uh, that's fully legitimate to do that. Because in Acts chapter 2, it uses two words interchangeably. And one is tongues, glossa, and the other is language, dialectos, or dialect. It uses those two words interchangeably. So for the sake of clarity, I tell people, when you read in the Bible about the gift of tongues, just substitute it with the word language. It'll take that confusion about what is it. They were speaking real languages back there in Acts 2. It makes it very clear that that was what was happening. What's purporting to be the gift of tongues today is not the same thing. It's Satan's copy. It's his duplicate. And uh, it fits into this whole idea of the image or the copying of the beast that uh, Satan has brought about. And he copies miracles too. Miracles to deceive. And we recognize in the Bible story that many times that happened. Moses went to Egypt. Moses was given some tokens to represent that he was speaking in behalf of God. And what happened? The magicians copied that. We'll talk about that a little bit more too. And ultimately, what's the final episode? What's the grand uh, finale of it all? It's when Satan personates Christ. That's the image of the beast par excellence. When he appears as Jesus on this earth. God's counsel to us has been, when you hear about that, go and check it out. Go and see what it is. Is that what the counsel is? No. It's stay away. Do not go there. Why? Because even if you know the truth of what the Bible says, you are subject to being deceived because that is going to be a powerful deception that, we ha- that the world has not seen yet. We can't even imagine a bright, glorious being as tall as this ceiling, apparently raising people from the grave, apparently curing of diseases. Uh, his appearance resembles what you read about in Revelation 1 or Daniel 10. We're told not to go and, and, and uh, even check it out because it's too dangerous. We're too weak. God won't protect us if we go on Satan's ground. That will be his duplication, his copying uh, to, to the utmost. But there are many other things having to do with the image of the beast. So this is Satan's counterfeit trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The wisest man said a threefold cord is not easily broken. And he recognized that strength in the Godhead, and he said, I want to copy that. And so he has brought about through his policies uh, the institutions that we're going to be talking about, that represented by the dragon, the beast, and false prophet. The city of Babylon was divided into three parts when it, was, when it was broken up. Remember, Christ is the Persian. Christ is the breaker. He's the one that breaks up Babylon. But before it's broken up, it's composed of three parts. And those three parts are dragon, beast, and false prophet. So those are the, the things that we're going to study about. First of all, the dragon. When the Bible uses that term, 
what are we to understand? Well, in Revelation chapter 12, just a few pages before uh, where we are in 16, we're told very clearly that in verses 7 through 9, the dragon is the devil, right? War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought. They did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast out of the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So in the primary sense, absolutely, the dragon represents Satan. The dragon, in the form of the serpent, first made its appearance in the story of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. So you have a beautiful, what seems like a harmless snake in a tree in Eden, progressing, morphing through the story of the Bible to become the great red dragon. You see that progression? A snake, beautiful, could fly, but told untruths about God. And eventually, a great red uh, dragon that, that you can't even describe. That's the story of sin. Starts small, then gets out of control. So the dragon is Satan. Now notice what the dragon said in the third chapter of Genesis, because we're going to make an application of this. If you have your Bible open to Genesis 3, you can see that in those first five verses... He said some very important and deceitful things. What's the first thing that he said? He said to the woman, Has God indeed said? Or in the King James, Hath God indeed said? He attacked what God said. What is another way of saying what God says? It's his word. He attacked the word of God and the commandment that God gave through his word. So that's what he did. He set a setting aside of Scripture is one of the very first things that Satan did. He also said in that narrative, you shall not surely die. That lie has been per- perpetuated from that day on down to our day to day. He also said, you will be as God. Now, the Scripture tells us that we should be like God in one sense, as a matter of fact, in Genesis 1.26, it says God made man in, him, in his image after his own likeness. He made us to be like him. But we recognize that, that that language does not mean that we are going to be deity or we are going to have divinity. We are not going to be creators in the sense that God is, right? And yet that's what Satan was in, intimating in this. And that's what some people have taken up from that philosophy in the pagan religions and even within some Christian religions, the idea that we will become as God in that, in that sense. No, of course we don't. We can be like God in character, but we'll never be like God in power. Lucifer coveted that, and that's what got him on the wrong foot. And, of course, he said, sin is good. It's okay to disobey. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. God's not that particular. He's not going to do anything about it. You know, that's the same lie that he told the angels in heaven. He said, we're so strong. Now, I know in Revelation 12 it says his tail captured what percentage? about a third. But you know what Satan said? He said, we are about a half of heaven's population. God's not going to kick us out. We're about half. Well, guess what? They were removed. We'll find out exactly what that percentage is someday. It doesn't really matter. But he said, sin is good. It's okay to disobey. You don't have to follow God's word. Now, when you think about it, do these concepts remind you of anything that's out there today? These are the very teachings of modern spiritualism. Forget about God's word. There's nothing to sin. 
all of these ideas. That's modern spiritualism. So we are going to make that application then that the dragon in Revelation uh, 16, as we're, where we're studying, can best be represented by modern spiritualism. Where did modern spiritualism... Spiritualism has been part of the story of planet Earth since the Garden of Eden. And what, if, can you find any warnings in the Old Testament that are stronger than the ones that say stay away from mediums and trying to uh, consult with the dead? You can't. That's the strongest warnings in the Old Testament. So it's always been there. But because America was birthed in the cradle of, of, of Protestant Christianity, uh, there, there was a recognition that that was not somewhere that we should dabble into. Um, however, about the same time that our church began, and I don't think that's by coincidence, there were several things happening about the time our church began. Evolution, uh, Mormonism, and uh, some other things too. But about that same time, there were three sisters that occupied this house in uh, Hydesville, we call it Rochester, New York, and they, they heard some some rappings, and they were told by their neighbors, that, that's a haunted house. And they heard some strange knockings or rappings. And rather than dismiss it, rather than fall down to their knees and pray, which is what we should do if we ever encounter anything like that, rather than do that, they engaged in it. They knocked back, and they developed a little code so that there could be communication. First of all, yes and no, and then more elaborate so it could actually spell things out, words, and so on. And they were told that that house had been owned by somebody before who was murdered and that his bones were down in the basement in a certain place, and they were told who had, con- who had done that crime. And they went down and checked it out, and yeah, there were, there, were, there were remnants of a body down there. They went to the police and said, you know, there's a dead man in that house, and this is the guy that did it. And the police went and apprehended that guy, and he confessed to the murder. Well, that was a jumping, a launching pad to give credibility to this type of thing. And I can remember even when I was a kid that uh, everybody knew that you didn't play around with Ouija boards and you didn't uh, dabble into witchcraft and that stuff. That's all changed now. That's all changed. The dark is good. The spirits are friendly. You remember when it was Casper the Friendly Ghost and television programs that made it harmless and enjoyable. I dream of Jeannie, bewitched, and so on. Have open the door to the occult in our culture to the point now where it's, it's, anything goes. Anything goes. And you can hardly scan down the uh, schedule of television programs and not see something having to do with, with the occult now. It's right out there. It all started in the modern sense about the same time our church started. In 1848, that happened. Books on near-death experience. Have you heard anything about that? It's all out there. Somebody says, yes, I was on the operating table or I was in an accident and I, I died and I was taken to heaven and they may publish books about it, they, make, make, they may make movies about it, and this is in, increasingly popular. It's terribly, terribly dangerous. Now, I'm not a physician. I can't tell you precisely from a physiological point what happens. I do know a little bit. I do know that when the brain is deprived of oxygen, that strange hallucinogenic thoughts can, can float through, and you cannot be in complete grasp, and you may see uh, strange things when you're deprived of oxygen in that way. But in any case, I'd rather take the word of God than the testimony of any person, no matter how convincing they may sound. They may be on that talk show telling you what they saw in heaven when they were there, but the Bible tells me that the dead know nothing. 
and I have to take that. That's the safe place. Books on near-death have uh, been catapulted into best-selling status, and this idea of being able to reach beyond, to penetrate the veil of the unseen is, is something that's accepted. We have even presidents uh, consulting with the other side now to get wisdom. Very, very dangerous thing to do. The Bible uses the word soul about 1,600 times, but never once does it combine it with the word immortal. That's a phrase the Bible is unfamiliar with, and yet you hear that time and time again. As a pastor, I find myself, sad to say, uh, many times in the setting of funerals and death, and um, either hearing what's going on in the grave nearby me or attending a service from a friend who was not an Adventist. I hear this all the time, the immortal soul. They're now looking down us from heaven, and so on. It's not what the Bible teaches. The dragon, modern spiritualism, is alive and well today. It teaches that the soul is immortal. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward. The memory of them, that doesn't mean our memory concerning them. It means their ability to think and remember. The memory of them, it says, is forgotten or non-functional. Their love, their hatred have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. That, that phrase is put in there for our protection. So we don't have to wonder. We can know that if this is a person that has passed away and died, they have nothing more to do with what happens on this earth. Because of that reason, the Bible says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. There is no work, device, knowledge, or wisdom in the grave where you are going. So that means if I pray to Mary, I'm not going to get any help. Mary cannot hear me. Mary is dead. Mary is waiting for the day when Jesus comes and brings her back to life. She's not in heaven. She can't answer my prayers. And this is something that, that the enemy has put out. Now, this is a shocking, shocking thing. This is what Sister White, the one that God commissioned to give information to our church, says. What's the first word of that passage there? Does it say one or two or few or maybe one here or one there? What's the word? Many. Many, well, is that talking about people in the world, people out there? No, it's talking about many in our community of faith. Keep that in mind. Many will be confronted by the spirits of devils personating beloved relatives or friends, declaring the most dangerous heresies. These visitants will appeal to our tenderest sympathies and, and will work miracles to sustain their pretensions. We must be prepared to withstand them with the Bible truth that the dead know not anything and they who thus appear are the spirits of devils. Are we prepared for that? S.N. Haskell, Stephen N. Haskell. Anybody know that name? One of our pioneers, great preacher, uh, organizer of, of Bible uh, lesson giving and so on. He was married. Uh, he was a caregiver to a lady who was about 20 years his senior. She had some physical disabilities. And that's how they met. And they, they uh, fell in love and got married. But she predeceased him because of her illness and because of the difference in their age. And uh, not long after that had happened, he was wake, awakened in the night, and there was Mary at his bedside. She looked absolutely stunning, ravishing, beautiful. And she said, Stephen, we're going to be closer now than when I was alive. And he, was, he loved her very much, and uh, uh, he didn't know what to do at first. He, his emotions felt drawn to reach out to this beautiful, glorious being that was Mary, her voice, her expression, and everything. But, 
The Bible verse came to his mind. The dead know not anything. And so he said, you are not Mary. You are not my Mary. You are an evil spirit. In the name of Jesus, be gone. Stephen's account of that experience is interesting because he says that when he said that, what had been a beautiful, glorious being standing at his bedside turned into the most hideous, grotesque face he had ever seen in his life, but left. And he felt uh, uneasy about that. He asked Sister White, is there some sin in my life that this happened to me? And Sister White said, no, this is just a part of the world we live in. But that's why that text is given, that passage. We have to be prepared. There may be some of us right here who will experience something like that someday. You have to be on your guard. You have to know that that is not your dead relative or friend. The dragon is modern spiritualism. What about the beast? Well, the beast that it talks about in Revelation 16 is the same as what is identified in the first 10 verses of chapter 13. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, speak about the beast from the sea. And we're not going to take any one of these topics we could spend a whole hour on. You recognize that. We're trying to hit the highlights. But the identity of the beast in the first part of Revelation 13 is well established. And when I say that, I want to say two things, first of all. Uh, When we identify the beast of Revelation 13 as the historical papacy, we want to draw a clear distinction between the hierarchy, the system of the papacy, the organization, and its adherents, its members. We fully believe that there are wonderful Christian people that are Catholics today. And I fully believe that when that day comes, there will be more standing ready to be Jesus who are today Catholics than the today are Seventh-day Adventists. I believe that. And not only Catholics, but in all communities of faith. God has his people. He told Elijah, you may think you're alone, but there's 7,000 out there that haven't bent the knee. So, but they're, they're, under a, a, uh, they're within a system of deception. That's why Revelation 18 says that the call is to be given to come out of her, my people. God has people within Babylon today. But nevertheless, this is the, the list of clues that tells us that the beast of Revelation 13, 1 to 10, is the historical papacy. Authority that came from pagan Rome, We know how that transfer occurred in history. Being a worldwide religious power. Does anybody doubt that today? Is there somebody on planet Earth from an earthly point of view that bears more influence than the head of the Roman church? I don't know that there would be. Claims equality with God. Uh, There's a multitude of references you can look up on that. But uh, Pope Leo XIII said it very concisely. We hold on earth the place of God Almighty. That's some words that should never escape from mortal lips, for sure. It was a persecuting power during the Middle Ages. We don't know how many, but somewhere between 50 and 100 million, probably. Records weren't kept, but lost their lives to the church because they would not follow the, the dogma that uh, Rome put out. And it reigned in an uninterrupted way for 1,260 years. That is a time period that the Bible mentions no fewer than seven times. Seven times it gives us that number to go by. Must be very important. And the number of his name, you're probably acquainted with how that works out with the title that the Pope has used in the past. Not today, because they're sensitive to this. But, they, but in times past, vicarious filii dei, vicar of the Son of God, the one who stands in the place of the Son of God, and the numerical equivalent of those letters 
comes out to be 666. So the identity of the beast is, uh, is very well set. Not only in Revelation 13, but there are six other pictures in the Bible that bring this to view. Seven pictures in total. Revelation 13 plus, there are others in Daniel, representing the horn power of Daniel 7, the horn power of Daniel 8, the king of the north in the last part of the 11th chapter, and then you have 2 Thessalonians 2, where it's identified as the man of sin, and you have 1 John 2 and 4, where it talks about the antichrist. The word anti there means what? In the place of. In the place of. Latin, it would be against, but Greek, where the New Testament was written, in place of is the primary meaning. Revelation 13, the beast power. Revelation 17, the harlot. What I'm sharing with you, I used to think that Seventh-day Adventists were the only ones that knew about these things. But uh, as my journey has continued, uh, I've, I've come to see that these were things that were taught by all the reformers. For hundreds of years, these were taught. It's only been in recent times where the mantle has been put upon this type of thinking. And in our politically correct, don't speak, you know, uh, uh, evil of anything uh, ap- atmosphere, you don't hear this too much. But all Protestant churches taught this. Now it seems that it's, uh, there are a few still remaining Protestant churches who have it, have it straight, but there are not very many, but the vast majority have put these ideas aside. But all the Reformers saw it this way. They saw that all seven pictures in the Bible referred to one organization, not a single person. That's another huge error that the world is making today. They're looking for the Antichrist to be one single person. Not in Scripture. It's a system, an organization, a church. So the Protestants saw it all this way, representing a system, not a person, and that the, uh, was fulfilled in the historical papacy. And why is this important? Well, if you don't know who the beast is, you won't know what the mark of the beast is. And the mark of the beast is what Revelation centers on warning us against, Right? And if we're a little bit foggy, if we're a little bit misty, I'm not sure what the beast is. Well, we're going to be mixed up about what the mark of the beast is. So it's important to have the identity of the beast firmly locked in. And we can have all confidence that what we have believed, what we have taught, what we have shared is absolutely the truth. It's the devil's purpose to try to throw mud into that water and make it unclear. So the dragon is modern spiritualism. The beast is the historical papacy. What is the false prophet? Those are the three that are brought to light there in Revelation 16, 13. So what is the false prophet? I'm going to give you the conclusion first, and then we're going to go back and look at some Bible texts, okay? I know that might be a little bit of a backward way, but uh, let's try to do it that way. So here's the conclusion. The false prophet is the beast from the earth that is the second beast of Revelation 13. And what is that? That's fallen Protestantism particularly or especially as manifested in the United States. The beast from the earth, the false prophet, Protestantism of the United States, all the same thing. Well, let's, let's uh, back up and how, how do we support that? Do we have Bible to back that up? Yes, we do. So if you have your Bible, let's take a look at some verses here in Revelation 13. We're going to look at 11 through 17. Then we're going to compare that with another passage in Revelation, chapter 19, 20. These two passages make it certain that the beast from the earth of Revelation 13 and the false prophet are the same thing. Look what it says in Revelation 13, 11 through 17. If you have your Bible open. I saw another beast come up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb. He spoke like a dragon. 
He exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence and caused the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, meaning the first beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast that was wounded by the sword and live. Now let's look at, take a look at Revelation 19.20. You'll find very similar words and phrases here. The beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, look at the description now, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived. Okay? So the false prophet does these things. He performs great signs. He does these signs in the beast's presence. And what that means is that they're, they're doing it in a collaborative way. They're working together. They're associated in his presence. That's what that means. And he uses these to deceive. Okay? Have those ideas in mind. That's Revelation 19.20. And uh, there's the verse again. And you go back to Revelation 13, and you find the very same phraseology. He, the beast of the earth, exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs that he was able to do in the sight of or in the presence of, it's the same word, the beast. So by comparing these characteristics, we can easily conclude that the false prophet of Revelation 19 and 16 and the beast from the earth of Revelation 13 are talking about the same thing. They both perform great signs. They do these signs in the beast's presence or in a collaborative way. And they use those signs to deceive. And by the way, Revelation 16, 14 uses that same phrase. It says the spirits of de demons performing signs. So the false prophet is the beast from the earth, the second beast of Revelation 13. And what, what do we know about that uh, uh, system, or how do we identify what that is? Well, we find if we look at that, that passage that this beast arises when the first beast, that is the beast from the sea, is in a decline. Take a look at Revelation 13, verse 10. Speaking about the first beast, he who leads into captivity will go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword, and so on. And then just at that time, as that first beast is having a setback, what does John see in his vision? He sees another beast rising. So the chronology fits that it would rep represent the United States because the first beast, first beast had its mortal setback when? At the very end of the, of the 18th century, right? 1798. And just about that time, here another entity, another system, another kingdom, using that word loosely, is on the arise. That would be the United States. It arises when the first beast, the beast from the sea, declines, when that deadly wound is inflicted, the close of the 1260-year prophecy. It comes from the earth. The first beast came from what? The sea. What does the water represent? Multitudes, nations, and so on. It comes from a populated area, the first beast does. The second beast, not so. It comes out of the earth. An unpopulated area, again, fits perfectly with the identification being the United States because it was a relatively unpopulated territory into which the pilgrims came. It has lamb-like horns. 
Lamb in the book of Revelation especially represents whom? Who's the lamb? Jesus is. 28 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is the lamb. So lamb-like, and what is horns? When the Bible speaks about horns, what's that? It's talking about power. An animal with its horns. It uses its horns to to wield its power, to defeat its enemies. So horns are are symbols of power in the Bible. Lamb-like horns, Christian-like authority and power. Isn't it true that the United States presented itself as a, a, a country of Christians as it began? I hesitate to say a Christian country, but a country of Christians as it began? Absolutely. And you notice the difference between these two beasts. They, have, they both have horns, but the first beast, the beast from the sea, has crowns on its horns. This beast does not. Crowns represent uh, kingly authority. And the beast power through the Middle Ages certainly exercised that type of authority. But this, this beast is different. It's rather than a monarchy, it's a democracy. I know we sometimes doubt that, but that's the way the founding fathers wanted it to be. No crowns on its horns. So, based on where, where it came up, when it came up, how it manifested itself, and what it did, the conclusion is inescapable that the false prophet, which is the same thing as the second beast of Revelation 13, both refer to the United States, especially as it embraced uh, Protestant Christianity. The beast from the earth is the United States birthed in the cradle of Protestantism. What did Protestant begin as? What was their mantra, their, their, their uh, main statement? It was sola scriptura, being tired of uh, uh, being um, abused by church tradition. They said, Bible only. You can't prove it to me from the Bible, I don't want to hear it. That was what the reformers taught. Um, but they refused to let go of certain key papal doctrines. And rather than continue in the pursuit of truth and knowledge, John Robinson was the pastor of the pilgrims, and he wrote the pilgrims a letter. He couldn't go with them. He got sick at the last minute. He wanted to go with the pilgrims, but he wrote them out a letter and said, if you find, I'm your pastor, I've been your shepherd, but I'm not going to be able to be with you anymore. But if you find truth, even though it's not been given by me, pursue it and embrace it and apply it. If it's Bible truth, continue to grow. That was how God envisioned the Protestant Reformation continuing, but it did not happen. Rather that the, uh, the Protestant churches became stagnated in the footsteps of their pioneers and refused to go any further. And that was the tragic uh, blow that, that, uh, that was inflicted on Protestantism. It all has to do with this book right? This is the Word of God, the Holy Bible. It all has to do with that. Now, let's think for a minute. The dragon and the beast and the false prophet and each of their relationships to Scripture. I'm going to challenge your thinking. I know it's the afternoon. We all had a good lunch, but I hope there's still a little bit of brain in your, a little bit of blood in your brain to do some, do some thinking here. In relation to the Bible, take a look at these three, three entities now. We have the dragon, spiritualism. What place does it give to the Bible? Absolutely none. They don't care about Scripture whatsoever. They make no pretense of doing so. It has no place for the Bible. Catholicism, that's the beast. Uh, it has some place. Yes, they acknowledge the Bible, but it's not taught in the classes. It's the catechism that's taught, right? There's some place given to the Bible. I've been to Catholic services, and they've quoted from the Bible. There's some place given to it. But ultimately, what trumps Scripture? Church tradition. The catechism. Ten Commandments are changed in the Catechism, not, not in the Douay-Rheem Bible, 
You could study with your Catholic friend if he has a Douay Reign Bible, and, and all the truths of Scripture will, will gleam like jewels. But the Catechism, no, that's the Word of Man, not the Word of God. So Catholicism has some place for the Bible, but ultimately tradition trumps it. But Protestantism claims to follow the Bible all the way, sola scriptura, but ultimately it won't let go of some key Catholic doctrines, which are Sunday sacredness and the immortality of the soul. And as long as those two things, among other things, but those two key things are retained, Protestantism is married to Catholicism. There are other things as well, but those are the two key things. Now, just to challenge your thinking one step further, consider these three uh, entities, dragon, beast, false prophet, in relation to the temptations that were given to Jesus. How many temptations did the devil bring to Jesus there? There were three, right? So in the first temptation of Christ, you might see a little bit of Catholicism in that. In that, Satan came. When Satan came to Jesus, what did he tell him at first, in the first temptation? Did he say, um, I'm the devil? I'm the one that uh, you evicted from heaven, and uh, uh, this is what I would like you to do. Is that what he said? No. He pretended to be an angel from God. He pretended to be an angel from God. In fact, he said, you know, I heard a rumor that they had some trouble upstairs and somebody was evicted. Ah, let's see. Maybe that was you. That's what he said. So he claimed to be in the place of God in the first temptation, and also there was something about changing stones in that temptation, wasn't it? I know I'm stretching it a little bit here, but uh, think about it. That's the first temptation. Might have some resemblance to Catholicism. In the second temptation, you can maybe think of a little bit more in the, uh, in the realm of, of uh, Protestantism. In the second temptation, it was as if the devil said, you quoted the Bible? Did, did Jesus quote the Bible at the end of the first temptation? Yes, he said, Satan said, if you are the Son of God, change these stones into bread. And what did Jesus say? It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth, mouth of God. So that it was as, as if the devil said, oh, okay, I can see you can quote Scripture. I can quote Scripture too. It says, we would call it Psalm 91, uh, cast yourself off this high pinnacle here because it is written, angels are going to catch you so that you won't stub your toe. I'm paraphrasing. Now, here's the thing. Satan, does Satan know the Bible, by the way? Does Satan study the Bible? He knows, the better, he knows the Bible better than we do, but the message doesn't change his heart. But he quoted the Bible, but actually he misquoted it. If you look very, very carefully at what he said there in Matthew 4, in quoting what we call Psalm 91, he misquoted that passage. Very tricky. He left a key part out. You know what it was? It was the part that says, the angels will keep thee in all thy ways. Satan knew I can't, I can't include that in my reference because that would make it very plain that jumping off a temple isn't keeping myself in God's ways. I'm not doing God's will if I jump off a temple and expect to be saved. So he left that part out. So that's kind of like Protestantism in a sense that it quotes the Bible, but it doesn't take the whole thing. And that's, that's very, very sad. By the way, there are a lot of God's people in, in these churches today. We're not talking about people. We're talking about systems and theologies. But that's what modern Protestantism has done. It says it follows the Bible, but it doesn't really follow the Bible. Now, the third temptation, maybe you can see spiritualism in here. Because what happened in the third temptation? No longer did Satan say, I'm an angel from heaven coming from your father to give you a message. He didn't say that anymore. He, he knew that Jesus knew who he was. And so there was no more point 
in putting up a pretense. Mask could come off now. And he, what he said was, I know why, you've, why you're here. You're here to win the world, but that's going to be very costly. I'll tell you what, let's strike a deal. Let's make a compromise. Just kneel down and, and worship me, and I'll give it to you now. You can save yourself all that trouble. So that's like modern spiritualism, direct appeal to worship Satan. And sad to say, uh, even in our country, there are forms of spiritism, and that's, what, that, that's what's actually happening. Direct worship of the enemy. Church of Satan, worshiping Lucifer. It's very, very tragic. <clears throat> this listing of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet is kind of interesting. They're always listed in that order, never differently. Dragon, beast, false prophet. They're introduced in the book of Revelation in that order. First the dragon, chapter 12, then the beast, then the false prophet, okay? And historically, that's the sequence in which they appeared. The dragon is in the Garden of Eden, and the beast doesn't come along until modern era, you know, after Christ, and Protestantism uh, came along after that. It's kind of an interesting thing. Now, these three, prophecy tells us, will, fo- will form a threefold union at the time of the end. That threefold union, Revelation calls the last edition of Babylon. The teaching of the immortality of the soul, which is shared by spiritualism, in fact, it's the fundamental teaching of spiritualism. It's shared by spiritualism, Catholicism, and most of modern Protestantism is like a glue, an adhesive that will bind these three together. A lot of people have the the misguided notion that uh, what the Bible is saying is that when this coming together occurs, that every single individual part is accepting every single part of the other, that there's congruency. And that's not really what's going to happen. They will come together on on those points in which they have commonality. But that doesn't mean that they will necessarily leave off every single individual belief. If you're waiting for that, I don't think it's going to happen. And the precedent that we can look toward to illustrate that perfectly is what happened 2,000 years ago. When Jesus was put on the cross, there were Pharisees, there were Sadducees, there were Zealots, there were Essenes, there were many different groups. And they retained their individuality to some degree, but they came together in putting Jesus on the cross. And the same is going to be true here. Having said that, we see a remarkable coming together between Protestantism and Catholicism today. For the things happening today where were um, uh, the Pope would worship in a Lutheran church or they would share communion together or any of these other forms of, of unity would be shocking news to the Reformers, I can, I can assure you. Along with the immortality of the soul, Sunday sacredness, another part of that glue that brings these three together that uh, make up Babylon. Then that system is then supported by, you would say, non-religious, the non-religious component of the kings of the earth. And that is going to be the last day of edition of what Satan is going to use to try to snuff out any evidence of those who are faithful to God. And it's going to be, the odds numerically are not going to be in favor of those that are faithful to God, but but one with God is a majority, Right? Okay, let's look at this matter. It says it talks about these, these three frog-like spirits. What's that talking about? Why frogs? Well, there are three things that I'd like to point out that I think uh, are interesting and, and instructive. Three lessons that come out of this idea. First of all, frogs, if you think back in history, frogs provided the badge 
of authenticity for the magicians of Egypt. You remember what happened there? Moses and Aaron were told, and they were given certain miracles that they could do. Uh, one of them was that Moses said, throw down your, your stick, and it became what? Became a serpent. Was that the end of that story, though? No, the Bible says the magicians were able to do likewise. I can't explain that to you. I can tell you for sure that Satan cannot create life. That's for certain. Satan can't create life. But he can create an illusion that is so realistic that you can't tell the difference. So ultimately, it matters not. It looked, Sister Wine, when she describes this in Patriarch's Prophets, it says, to every appearance it looked like they were, were real writhing snakes. I can't explain how Satan has the power to do that, but he does. And so when the plagues came and the, uh, the uh, command was given by God for Moses to, to raise his, his rod and, and the Nile emitted tons and tons of frogs, what did the magicians do? They did likewise. And again, I can't explain how the, the difference between the frogs that came out under the command of Moses and those that came out under the command of the magicians, but, but it looked so real you couldn't tell the difference. That's the point. And by, that, by virtue of that fact, they were able to present themselves as being authentic. He's got power, we got power. He's speaking for God, we're speaking for God. It was the badge of authenticity for them to be able to produce frogs. So when Revelation 16 says that these spirits are frog-like, my mind goes back to what happened in Egypt. And the point is that when the devil does miracles, which the Bible says he's going to do, that they are done for the purpose of presenting himself or his workers as being authentic. It's going to be a time when we cannot believe our eyes. You know that saying, seeing is believing? You're going to have to set that aside. The Word of God is going to have to be our source of truth and authority. We're not going to be able to believe everything we see because these miracles will be so realistic, you will not be able to tell the difference. It will look as if your dead loved one came out of that grave and is alive again. Frogs, they're the badge of authenticity, as it happened back in Egypt. Uh, snakes and frogs and a river that turned to blood. The magicians of Egypt were able to copy what Moses did. And we have this text in Revelation 13 that tells us explicitly, he even makes fire come down from heaven. Why is that phrase in there? What does that phrase bring your mind to? Story in the Old Testament. Elijah, he called down fire in heaven, both on Mount Carmel, at the end of that uh, episode there, and when the, the king sent a contingency of 50 soldiers, Elijah called fire down. So that was what made him appear to be a true prophet. He could call fire down from heaven. And the beast and the false prophet will be able to do the same thing. We have to be prepared for the fact that just because it's miraculous does not mean it's from God. There's another side that has power to do that for the purpose of deception. Frog-like spirits done for the purpose of deceiving, signs that deceive. The first beast, that is the beast from the earth, performs great, mega is the word there, mega signs, semia, like semaphore. In his presence, that is in a cooperative way, showing that they are working together, and by these he deceives. Now here's a question for you, if I can tease your brain, if you are still awake with me here. How does a frog catch its prey? with its tongue. Does that have possibly some relevance to what we're talking about here? Some interesting things about frogs and their tongues. The frog has the ability to change its saliva into a very sticky substance 
that it puts on its tongue. And the adhesive on a frog's tongue uh, can hold one and one-half times its body weight. Translate that into your own uh, numbers if you want. You weigh 150 pounds, that means that from your tongue you could suspend 225 pounds. That's what a frog can do. It can hold up one and a half times its weight by its tongue, and its tongue is about one-third the length of its body. In human terms, that means my tongue's down about here where my, where my tie is. Not, not a very good picture, is it? But that's the way it is with a frog. It catches its prey by its tongue. And so I'm going to step out and say that we may see an application here. The modern tongues or charismatic movement is another part of this cement, this binding agent that puts this last day Babylon together. Those things will be shared, and Satan is using that to bring people together. We had a meeting that took place, uh, what is this now, a little bit more than a year ago, when uh, Tony Palmer, remember, he had a meeting with the Pope. The Pope recorded a message, an appeal, that was then played to this meeting that was brought together by Kenneth Copeland, Assembly of God, Pentecostal pastor. And it was played before about a thousand preachers and teachers. That was not a church congregation with members. It was a bringing together of teachers and leaders and pastors. And they played that appeal from the Pope, and everybody assented to it. We're one with you. We're going to heal the deadly wound, heal the wound on the body of Christ, which they consider to be the breaking out of Protestantism from Catholicism. That's the deadly wound as far as they're concerned. And what happened right after that appeal was played, there was a a ceremony of acknowledgement and acceptance, and there was a prayer, including speaking in tongues, as part of that. Also, words come from mouths, and words are used to catch people. Speaking of the wicked, it says, His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. This is talking about the devil working through people, working through a false church. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies and waits secretly as a lion in his den. When Peter wrote that text, the devil goes about as a roaring lion. I wonder if he was thinking what David wrote here. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. Words accomplish that, uh, that function. Among my people there are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men with their words. So when Revelation says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are the spirits of demons performing signs that go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the day of that great day of God Almighty. And they gathered them together to a place called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. That's what we're going to study in our last session. We're going to take a little 10-minute break, stretch, get a drink of water, move around a little bit, and then let's say at 3.45, we'll uh, pick it up again and continue our study. Let me just have a prayer as we close, though. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for warning us, giving us this message of love, but a warning message also to be on our guard, to know what the devil is up to. As Paul said, we are not ignorant of his devices. We need to be aware so that we can be on safe ground, which is the truth of the Bible revealed by your spirit. So Lord, help us to cherish these truths and to know where we stand, be ready always to give an answer, and most of all, to have our lives centered around looking for that great day when Jesus will come and take us home. In his name we pray, amen.